Hey world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. OrthoLaser, orthopedic laser centers powered by MLS M8 laser technology is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Again, www.ortholaserwithaz.com to learn more. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Okay, hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here again for another great episode of The Ortho Show. We have a special guest star. We've got heavy hitters coming, ladies and gentlemen. It's been amazing who we've been pulling in, but... We have Michael Sook. Now, it's going to take me a second here. I need a drink of water to get through all of the initials that come after his name. So we have MD, JD, MPH, MBA, MACS. So, dude, you are really an underachiever. Where is your PhD? Oh, PhD is in the closet. Uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> I literally got like 18 initials to the end of your name. I love it. All right, let me get my drink of water because now we're going to sit, we're going to tell everybody what you do and why you're such an important uh, individual within the orthopedic space. So, so Mike, you're the chief physician officer of Geisinger System in Pennsylvania, professor of orthopedic sur- uh, surgery at the Geisinger School of Medicine. You're uh, on the uh, board of trustee for the AMA, board of directors for the Joint Commission, all those white coat nurses that keep us in line, the board of directors, uh, also on the board of directors for, uh, directors for Keystone ACO. So other than that, you're not really doing much to keep yourself busy, huh? Well, I, you know, I operate too in there. I'm, I'm also, I also run a large department of orthopedics. So that's actually probably the most important part of my job. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing, really, the list of things that you're doing. Thanks. So, so tell, you know, we like to start off, just tell us what's happening where you are. What's happening with the, with the pandemic and how, what are you doing to keep yourself busy? Yeah, you know, thanks, thanks, Scott. I think uh, you know we're Geisinger Health Systems located in a, a pretty rural area in uh, Danville, Pennsylvania, and we have about thirteen hospitals that spread all across central Pennsylvania. So, you know, we've been uh, very lucky in some senses, in the sense that the the things that are happening in the larger cities haven't really hit us as yet. So, our total census across the system is about a hundred patients. Uh, we've got about fifty percent capacity that remains in our hospital. Uh, we've begun the redeployment of, uh, of, uh, of physicians and, and PAs to help in the front line because people are getting tired. 
but we're not seeing nearly the same types of stories that I think we're hearing out of New York and San Francisco and other things. And I think in many ways we're blessed. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, with an expectation that the surge will sometime hit us, uh, we're kind of all sitting around uh, waiting for it to come. And we may be going later than everybody else. So the watchful waiting is really, it's really uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of the docs and especially the orthopedic surgeons. You know, I was just listening on the, the nightly news, and, and they're all saying the same thing about Boston right now. Boston is the new hotspot. Yeah. So, yeah, I live in Boston, and we have a census of about 100 patients in my hospital, which we still have about 60 beds that are available. Mass General basically is only a third full at this point, and we have all these satellite yeah. you know, facilities that have been built, which is great. I think it's awesome to prepare, but at the end of the day, uh, this virus affects different communities very differently, even amongst you know different places within the state. So, you know, I think having having the local uh, people sort of help to decide what's best for your local community is probably what's going to be going to be wise. When do you anticipate elective surgery opening up again where you guys are? Yeah, you know, it's a big debate uh, going on here in Pennsylvania. Uh, just today, UPMC, uh, as uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, announced that they're going to go full steam ahead uh, with elective surgeries, despite the fact the governor hasn't yet lifted the uh, stay-at-home uh, uh, requirements and the elective surgeries. So we're looking, we're looking at it on a daily basis. Uh, you know, with the benefit of time, we have some time to plan. So we're looking at how to prioritize the surgeries we have across our system. We uh, last week I counted, we have almost fourteen hundred quote unquote, elective orthopedic surgeries that need to be done across the system. Uh, and this is on top of the regular cadence that we would normally do. So catching up is going to be really, really a big challenge. Uh, I think that, you know, just to go off on that a little bit, I think that some of the the great thing, if you want to call it, or some of the benefits of this kind of COVID crisis is it's really accelerated a number of changes that I think have always been thoughtful or things that we've been thinking about, things about how do we create more efficiencies or more throughput through an operating room? Uh, how do we change uh, the world with telehealth so that we maybe in the future don't need as much physical space for clinics? We can do a lot of it with telehealth or how do we change our appointment times and things like that? And you know, I'm fortunate to be part of a, a pretty important committee uh, here going forward. It's our post-COVID uh, committee and we're looking to take advantage of all the great things we started as a result, uh, taking a close look at all the things we got rid of because we didn't need and not really interested in maybe bringing them back just because things get back to normal. So it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, it's going to clearly be a new normal. So what I love about you is like I joke around, like when we go to these society meetings, we, we go to a lot of conferences yeah. together. And you're like, you're like the godfather. It's like literally every major industry comes <laughs> over and kisses your ring to be able to get an appointment time with you. And now I'm like, uh, oh, well, look, he's a doctor. He's a lawyer. He's a master's of public health. He's got an MBA. I mean, like, yeah, of course they want to talk to you. But uh, so you have a voice within, within yeah. the industry at a very high level of how at, at the macroeconomics of how this is all going to play out. So, I mean, yeah, those types of changes are really important. What, what else do you see? I mean, because you're you're such a thought yeah. leader in this area. Well, thanks, Scott. I, you know, I, I I don't know if I'm a thought leader, but I'm just somebody who, like you, thinks a lot, right? So whether people follow or not, that's a whole other question. <laughs> I guess the 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 big thing for me is is what comes on the other side of this mountain is this is this uh, is this refocus and attention on value when it comes to orthopedics. And you and I have had some really great conversations about what that means for the future. And We've been able to do some very innovative things here at Geisinger with regard to providing warranties and things like that. So standing behind the surgeries that we do because we have a system that supports it uh, along the spectrum and an insurance company that will stand behind it as well. 
but I think the future is going to be more about how the consumer sees the delivery of healthcare. Um, they're going to have a greater stake in what the outcomes are. And I think the future is really going to be about how we as physicians and how these systems uh, really assure people uh, that the outcome we promise is the outcome that they're going to get. Uh, otherwise, they'll march with their, they'll vote with their feet. I think that's a, a, a real uh, possibility in the future coming up. Yeah, we're really hearing that, that many of the, the larger companies or, or even the smaller companies are going to band together and really help to guide what they want for their employees. And, and so we're going to have to listen. I think, you know, you say, you know, beautifully that, you know, the, the healthcare, the value equality equation has to be put through. One of the things that you know, you, 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 pretty ballsy, all right? I mean, you give guarantees. I mean, who the hell gives guarantees yeah. in orthopedics? Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the idea stems from this idea, uh, from the notion that if we are really good at what we do and we have control over all of the elements of production uh, from actually doing the surgery, the hospital experience, the pre-hospital experience, the post-hospital experience, and then also at the same time have uh, a degree of control over who pays and where the money comes from. I think you can do what we've been able to structure is almost a left pocket, right packet uh, type of transfer that says that if a person who comes in with Geisinger Health Insurance wants to have surgery done by a Geisinger surgeon in a Geisinger hospital where we have control over that entire means of production, and it's a procedure that we know that we're going to get their engagement on so they'll do all the right things and be pre-optimized the way we want, we should take the bet because the bed is actually pretty solid, right? If you can think about all of the perfect conditions that you would want to be under, um, we all know that as orthopedic surgeons. We all think about, you know, if you're a total knee surgeon, you think about that and you're right-handed, you think about that BMI 21 who's coming in and it's a right knee and you can do it in 36 minutes and you know exactly, you know, how that's going to go because your team's there, your anesthesiologist's there and they're going to have a great experience. You know, you'd want to bet on that patient. But, you know, getting patients to that level, that's the trick. And then standing behind it uh, with the financial uh, kind of backing is actually the other part. Uh, and I think that's what's hard, but I think that's what's coming. Yeah, I mean, the, your ACO model must really play well into that, right? I mean, you get, you get yeah. this entire population. You get a certain amount of money to take care of patients. Variability is the killer of, of quality and efficiency. That's right. So, I mean, okay. how, so like I have 11 partners in my practice. We can't agree, you know, how to turn on the lights. I mean, how do you get the team together to really make an influential, influential change? Yeah, so we, we started a program here in, in orthopedic surgery called Proven Care. Uh, it's been about 9, 10, 11 years or so since we started. And it started out in the, under this concept, uh, and our heart surgeons actually started the, uh, the first uh, evidence-based protocol. And this was the, based on the idea that if you could do a single vessel cabbage uh, and you did it with full control over the means of production, then you ought to be able to say, I can guarantee that outcome. The proven care element of it was all about focusing on where the evidence was. And so as we applied it to orthopedic surgery, we got everybody into a room. We looked at all of the evidence. And we said, these are the things that are sacrosanct. Now, when it comes to variability, people said, well, I like to do it a little bit this way, or I like to do it a little bit this uh, that way. We said, bring the evidence. And if the evidence proved that, you, that your way was better, then we would all shift. Now, at the same time, we also don't, aren't so rigid on our algorithms to the point where we micromanage individual decision-making. And an example would be, um, we know that anticoagulation post-total joint surgery is important. But we don't say you have to use aspirin or you have to use a low molecular weight. We just say you have to do one. And something is then checked in terms of the, the, the doctor's preference. So there's a degree of preference, but it can't be unwarranted variation. And that's the key. 
It needs to be backed by science and it needs to be something that fits into the overall picture very well. Yeah, we found uh, that as soon as the transparency was there, all of a sudden, everybody had to come to the table. Well, I do it this way. My results are such and such. Well, let me show you you're like the stay in your infection rate because, dude, you're taking three and a half hours to do a total D and, you you know, let us, we'll share. And we did that. We we got together at our local hospital in a co-management agreement and we saved the hospital about a million and a half dollars a year in that that way in which we do things, which was, you know, exactly what you're talking about at a lower level. But certainly as well now now all right so you you got I get the, I get the the guarantee on the joint replacement you got the science for that you know what's going on you and I had a offline conversation at OVBC in, in Newport Zeke yeah. Kane's course you know I'm I'm like the laser dude and uh, so you're like hey Scott you know I'm gonna do a, a knee pain bundle so get, yeah. so let's talk about that so the so the listeners can understand your <laughs> thoughts because I I'm thinking that may be one that may be hard to guarantee but let's hear it. Yeah, so, you know, when we started on the process along uh, kind of the warranty programs around total joints and other things, we do it around hip fractures as well. We started really with uh, episodes of care that were relatively finite and something that we could control. So the world went jumped on on bundles around t- primary uh, total joints. We then extended it just this past year and into revision total knees. So now we have a warranty around a revision uh, total knee. Um, then I started to think about what if we created a conservative care bundle where we would say that this is the outcome that we think you can uh, experience, but we would put all of the elements in this, in this longitudinal spectrum of things, and we'd put all of the tools in and we created one big bundle price for conservative care with a guaranteed outcome. And that's where we talked about laser because I got all fascinated by your laser and, 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 uh, and the toys that you have, because in my mind, you know, at a very rudimentary level, knee pain is controlled by really just a handful of things we have currently, oral medications, injections, sometimes a high hyaluronic acid, uh, and ultimately all roads lead to surgery. And we think it's just a time frame. It's we're extending the time frame, but we really in this middle, in this middle ground only have a handful of tools available to us. And so we're looking at things like Iovera, other products that can actually ablate nerves or at least knock out nerves. Or we're looking at long-acting uh, analgesics uh, uh, that can play a role. And we're looking at combinations therapies. And ultimately, I want to create a bundle that says, hey, we're going to take care of you for the next five years, guaranteed, but this is how much it's going to cost, and you get everything at your disposal. Uh, who knows? Who knows if we're going to be able to do it? But I think if we start to think like that, and all of a sudden, lots of different players start to, to uh, jump into the mix. And they're all willing to be participants in something like this as a grand experiment. And that may explain why a lot of these companies are interested in knowing what we're thinking about next. I mean, I, I really sense that what you're trying to build here is going to be even more important in the post-pandemic world. You talked about it. Yeah. We were having a hard time keeping up with the, with the need for arthroplasty pre-pandemic. You've got 1,400 surgeries that now need to find a place. That's right. So so there's going to be a delay in care for our elderly in particular. They're still going to want their cases done because, you know, they deserve it. They're older and they have pain. They want to be able to walk around. So they'll, they'll wait in the queue, but they're going to need some help. They're going to need yeah. some of these alternative treatments. And then you've got the younger population who's been out of work for two months who says, hey, doc, you know, I don't know that I'm going to have a total knee replacement right now. I need something that can keep me going to earn a paycheck for my family. I need to get out there into the workforce. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think you hit on two really important sectors of our orthopedic world is 
you know, the uh, those who are active, uh, but more sedentary now because they have pain in their hip or their knee or other uh, joints uh, that uh, could be solved or could be fixed by a surgery. And then you have a younger active uh, workforce uh, that's out there that really touches upon this concept of presenteeism and absenteeism, right? So presenteeism is this idea that uh, that people go to work when they're in pain, but they don't work to the to the highest level that they can. That's a problem for the workforce. And then absenteeism, of course, is I'm in too much pain to work at all. So orthopedic surgeons in our field, I think, is uh, has has got a tremendous amount to play. I think in in getting America back to work and getting America back to uh, pre-COVID standards and doing it in a way that I think will challenge the traditional ways we're doing business. I think I think you're really right. I think this COVID uh, situation has and will uh, um, significantly uh, affect the way we think about ourselves as a field, both surgically and non-surgically, and how much more of a role we can play in that. I'm, uh, I'm interviewing a, a virologist uh, in a couple hours from uh, yeah. USC, Professor uh, Paula Cannon. And one of the things that we were talking about, which actually has some overlap with you, which is why I wanted to bring it up, yeah. is that she was, why is it that, that certain people uh, are so affected by the virus and yet other people aren't? And she thought one of the components may be genetics. And so yeah. I know that you guys at Geisinger have a pretty amazing genetics yeah. database. Can you talk to, talk, talk to us about that and just see yeah, what your thoughts are? You know, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a great question. And we're very fortunate here at Geisinger to have uh, a couple of things that are really supportive of a great genetics program. And that is that we have a population that's I would say relatively homogeneous uh, in, in that central Pennsylvanians tend to stay in central Pennsylvania, long histories of families and lots of medical records. And uh, the simple fact is, is that Geisinger has been here just over a hundred years and this is the place where they all come. The other thing that really adds to our, uh, our benefit is the fact that uh, some 26 years ago or so, um, the folks at the leadership at Geisinger made, an, made the choice. They said, we don't wanna be on a paper record. This is 25 years ago. And they made a small investment and made a decision to go with a small startup company in Nina, Wisconsin. Uh, you may have heard of it. So we became uh, one of the first, if not the first client of Epic. And so we have 26 years of data in our electronic wow. medical record. And so these things combined with the fact that patients come in, uh, they get consented for what we call my code. And our, our acceptance rate of, of being tested is extremely high. Uh, and they put their data and their genetic code into the uh, into our banks, um, and we keep it for future study and future effort. And the last I checked is we have the largest, single largest data bank of uh, genetic data uh, in the entire country at this point, where uh, when we were challenged several years ago uh, by President Obama uh, to code 250,000 Americans, we were already at something like 100,000 just at one place. And so we have a tremendous amount of data. And one of the things that have come out of this is uh, we began to look at the data from an orthopedic perspective. And we just got a paper published or at least uh, accepted for publication uh, this week. And that we think we found, and again, I don't want to overstate this, but we think that we found the genetic link to vascular necrosis of the hip. And so we'll be publishing that uh, uh, in JBGS uh, sometime this week. I don't want to overstate the claim and how clinically useful it is, but we were able to go through our data and be able to say that the people who have a clinical sign symptom, radiographic changes of avascular necrosis, seem to have this one particular link in their genetic code. And that's pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great yeah. story. I, you know, speaking, speaking of research, and, and it's amazing 
first and foremost, I think a lot of the research that's going on right now, unfortunately, is pretty much shut down. I mean, it's really yeah. hard to get follow up with patients. And so it'll be interesting to see how we, we leap across that chasm to be able to still get the information out. But it's really remarkable how how the federal government has really shifted, at, you know, to this sort of rapid response process that I, unlike anything I've seen, we we uh, I, I contacted the FDA five days ago about repurposing our lasers because there's mm-hmm. some some solid basic science that would suggest that the laser can reduce autoimmune response that we're seeing in the pulmonary fields of, of COVID patients. And so we want to try and repurpose the lasers to laze patients to try and prevent them from getting onto a ventilator, trying to catch them early. And I sent an email out to the FDA on, on Friday, and we got an email back Friday afternoon. And it's, it's amazing. It's like, so we went back and forth, and they wanted some additional information. We gave them all the specs and everything else. And they came back last night to say that you're a non-risk uh, assessment for your device, and you guys can go to your local IRB and set up a laser study for COVID. So, oh my gosh, that's great! Just so you know, I literally like I don't know anything about the FDA, but all of a sudden, you know, we got something through. So it's really remarkable the changes that are taking place, and it's great for us to take advantage of those yeah. uh, changes. And I bet you your database would provide you know significant uh, help in the COVID space as well, perhaps. Yeah, uh, going forwards as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a different world. I just hope this uh, rapidity of change is going to stick around for a while. You know, these FDA emergency use authorizations and things like that is, as you know, it, again, these are the things that in the post post COVID world we should hang on to and say, you know, why did we do it the old way, right? And these are totally. the things that we should be shedding. And and I, you know, I I encourage everybody who's in the healthcare space to to really go back to the drawing board and say. Gosh, we were really good. For, you know, the great example is telehealth, right? I mean, who mm-hmm. knew? We we converted close to 2,000 providers in literally four days uh, yeah, to be no, trained in telehealth. And in the meantime, we, we had spent four or five years trying to get three or four people a year uh, to do exactly. it. Exactly. That's crazy. Exactly. I mean, think about the, the idea that you would take. So let's take, let's go opposite. Okay, now you're the yep. patient, okay? Yep. And you got to take your son to the doctor. Yep. You're going to take three hours out of your day? I'm like, no, how about if we do a teleconference at 11 That's o'clock right. and we'll be over at 11.15? I right. mean, how, how efficient is that for everyone's time? Yeah, it's uh, amazing stuff. And one of the things we started here that uh, we think is going to start to turn into something that'll be permanent is, you know, we've been focusing a lot on trying to decompress our emergency room. So most most systems have started to put out these ortho-urgent care facilities so they can divert the musculoskeletal skeletal conditions from the ED. Um, so we're just starting a project now where I'm going to tap into the telehealth where patients at home, if they think they've hurt themselves, can just get a consult before they even go to the urgent care uh, and bypass <laughs> it completely at all. And so that's uh, that's something that we hope to roll out in the next week or two. Um but uh, and we'll provide it as a free service, or we'll provide it as a service to the community. Uh, nobody wants to come to the hospital anymore, and I don't think they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I agree. I don't think I want to go to the hospital. Uh, they, the good news is they. There's one minor benefit for me personally. Yeah. They won't allow me to take call right now because I literally haven't f- fixed a broken bone in probably I don't know like sure. ten years. So all my younger partners are like, you know, you know, just give us your call. <laughs> we, don't, yeah. we don't want you calling us. I'm like, all right, that works. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, you know, I think the other message though is that it, the pendulum swings back and forth. I know we, we still need to see our patients. You still yeah. like I'm going to want to meet a patient that I'm going to operate on for the first time. So somewhere in the middle. I, yeah. But that will sort of help to empty our waiting rooms, as you were saying earlier yeah. as well. Do you guys have like a physical therapy platform, outpatient thing, or home yep. exercise process that you guys do as part of the bundle? 
Well, we're, we're actually using a lot of uh, virtual therapy too, particularly for our joints. We're extending it into spine. Uh, and uh, we use a company called Force Therapeutics, which uh, helps us uh, do virtual visits. And it's really demonstrated some significant changes in our post-acute uh, uh, expenses. Uh, and so physical therapy is very important. But, you know, another, another thing you mentioned is, is, uh, is, you know, as we start to think about the future of even clinic visits, right? Um, you know, the future is going to be a, a lot about less efficiency, I think, about cleaning chairs and making sure there's enough time between patients, scheduling appointments so there's enough social distancing in the waiting room. You know, I think that there's a whole process that's going to, to take place where, where we actually have uh, much more technology involved in our patients. In one of our clinics, we do something called geofencing. Uh, we did this about three or four years ago. And if you have a person who can give you their cell phone, you can tell by their cellular signal how close they are to your clinic. And so my front office staff will get a beep and say, Mr. Smith is a mile away. And so they'll come in and then they'll walk in and be like, hi, Mr. Smith, nice to see you. Thanks for coming. And they're like, oh my gosh, what, what's going on? But I think that's going to be a pretty important, uh, interesting aspect in that um, you know, people will get a, a bi-level communication to say, look, hang out in your car. We're not ready for you. Uh, type of thing. All right, so so let me get this straight. You got everybody's <laughs> DNA, and now you're following them all with their cell phones. What's going on out there in the middle of Pennsylvania, Mike? I don't uh, know. I'm a little worried about you. <laughs> a lot of big brother. This is all secret. This is like Area 51. Don't. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we can't get away with that stuff in Boston. I can tell you that right now. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the beauty. Me. I think you know it's a, a beautiful countryside, but uh, you know, uh, for a lot of great things. I mean, we can experiment a lot, and we're doing a lot. Hey, Mike, this was fantastic. It's exactly what we wanted. We wanted to get, you know, world-class experts to talk to us and get our listeners to understand how we're going to get through the pandemic. You gave us some really great thought ideas. I really appreciate you very much. And, and really, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks, Scott. And best of luck. This is a great thing you're doing. I know I'm like number 30 or something on, on the list here. So I can't believe you've done that many already. But uh, keeping people connected, uh, you know, great job. And I'm happy to be part of it. Thanks, man. Okay, everybody, it's been a pleasure having everybody on once again. I want to thank our, thank our sponsor, Ortho Laser, Orthopedic Laser Centers. You can find us in all places that you listen to podcasts, and please don't forget to subscribe. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time. 